incarnation, I think two weeks ago. He is the God-man. He is fully God. He is fully man. But I don't believe that at age four, Jesus was omniscient. Remember, he had to empty himself. He left some of his glory aside. He left some of his godly powers aside. He remained God, but some of his... Man, I just don't know how the best way to say this. He set aside some of his powers. So it says the child grew. So he is the child man, but he's still a child. Okay? Don't expect, if you were to go travel back in time and talk to a two-year-old Jesus, that he would be as wise as the 30-year-old Jesus. He was a child. He waxed strong in spirit. His spirit grew with his body, waxing, increasing, growing. And this is a very important passage because it helps us to understand something of the character of Christ in the following passage when he's 12. Okay? He is growing. He is learning. He's filled with wisdom. Now, he was wiser than the average child. Now, remember, wisdom is the application of knowledge. Intelligence is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting tomatoes in fruit salad. Okay, it's the application. So, when he was four years old, he had the intelligence, I believe, of a four-year-old. But he perhaps had a greater insight. Now, at four, that didn't make much of a difference. But as we go to 12, you're dealing with the intelligence of a 12-year-old, but a much greater wisdom. And the grace of God was upon him. God favored him in a special way. And now we get to the long passage, sister. I've there, Bob. Um, his family traveled to Jerusalem for the, the feast. We don't know which feast. There are a number of feasts through the year. Years, uh, Luke is not specific. And when they travel down, it's, it's in a large group, a large caravan of family and friends. And th- this is practical. It's, it's for convenience, uh, and it's for protection. I mean, they weren't going through the, uh, you know, the wilds with a bunch of bandits, but it just makes sense. If you've got a whole bunch of people heading in the same way, they kind of caravan together, and it, it lets them share certain loads. You know, maybe this night this person cooks, this night this person cooks. Divide up the duties. Now, after the feast, Mary and Joseph left, and they assumed that Jesus was in the group Somewhere else. But after the first day's travel, they look and he's not there. So they return back to Jerusalem. That's a day's travel back and search for him three days. They eventually find him in the temple discussing scripture with the priests and the scribes. And we'll put your parent hat on for a moment. It's been four days. You don't know where your kid has been. They snap. Now, it's a very small rebuke, but it's unquestionably a rebuke. And it comes down to, how could you do this to us? And I don't think there's a parent here who wouldn't react exactly that way, except maybe a little more dramatically. (laughs) 
Don't let them confuse you. Many unbelievers have used this text to show Jesus as disobeying his parents. Now, if he's disobeying his parents, he's breaking the fourth commandment. And if he's breaking the fourth commandment, that is sin. And if he sins, he's disqualified from being a perfect sinless sacrifice. And if you just take a cursory look at the reading, that's a very reasonable interpretation. Which makes it very easy for someone to get us all tongue-tied about this. And I know a lot of Christians who've never really looked very closely at this passage. They kind of accept it and move on. But a misinterpretation of this passage is chipping away at the very base foundations of our faith. So let's talk about it. There is no question that Jesus chose to remain behind when his family left. But is this disobedience? Let's start with the scripture. In Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And when interpreting scripture, the best way to interpret scripture is with scripture. As scripture overlaps, we get a clearer picture. It's like Hebrew poetry, line on line, reinforcing each other, building a picture in the same way the God, our God, wrote scripture, a little here, a little there, everything reinforcing, building together into a beautiful edifice. So if we start with this scripture that Christ is sinless, the question is not, was it sin, but why wasn't it sin? It's a little recasting. We have to start with the belief, based on Scripture, that Christ was sinless. Or there's no way we're going to get anywhere in any of our logical discussions. We've already lost. Pack it in, go home. So, there have been many poorly thought out arguments around why this wasn't sin. Some have said it was a trivial anecdote added by the author, just a little bit of color. But if we say one point in the scripture is trivial, how do we know any other point isn't trivial? It under, that idea undermines scriptural integrity, so we throw that one away. Some think Jesus was wrong. We've already talked about that. This undermines our sinless Savior. Some try to excuse Jesus as an absent-minded Savior. He was so focused on working with the priests that he just forgot. I don't think this is consistent with the rest of the passage, talking about Jesus filled with wisdom. The absent-minded person the absent-minded professor, this is a, a trope in English at least, is a person who has lots of intelligence and just not a lot of wisdom. You know, I worked with a guy named Harry Leidenheim way back at the beginning of my career, and the man was brilliant, but he would lose his car. He would come into work on a ferry with his car, drive to work, 
and then coming home, get in a conversation with someone, drive home with them, and then the next morning couldn't figure out where his car was. That's absent-mindedness. Does that sound like wisdom? Yet the, the scripture clearly tells us that Christ was filled with wisdom. So we, that's, that's, that's a ridiculous idea, rejected. The next idea is that Jesus' parents were negligent. It wasn't really his fault, it was their fault. That's just a sad attempt at deflection. Jesus made a conscious decision to stay in Jerusalem. Let's not try to excuse him by saying it was his parents' fault. Well, none of these work. So what's left? What's left is the idea that somehow Jesus was right and his parents were wrong. Because remember, the passage we read is greatly flavored. Whose perspective is it told from? Anybody? Whose perspective? Is it from the perspective of the priests? Say no. Thank you. Is it from the perspective of a a passing beggar on the street? Is it written from the perspective of Jesus? No. You are sick. It's written from the perspective of who? The parents. This is the parents' view. They traveled back. They discovered Jesus was gone. They went back to Jerusalem. They searched for three days. They found him in the temple, and they reacted. I believe it is a completely accurate telling of the story, but it's from the perspective of the parents. And if we stick with the parents' perspective, we're going to get the wrong idea because their thoughts and ideas are caught up in this telling. When Mary rebuked Jesus in the temple, she rebuked him because she believed he had done wrong. And that reading is what gets us a misinterpretation. Because I believe that while Mary believed Jesus was wrong, Jesus was actually right. And it was his parents who were coming from the wrong position. What was he doing in the temple? Simple question, guys. What was he doing? Right. He was asking questions and he was getting answered. Right? What is the process we call by which you ask questions and get answers? Starts with an L. Ends with an ing. Learning. Learning. Christ was in the temple learning. He was getting instruction in the law that he could not get at Nazareth. It wasn't available. He had the privilege of sitting with the greatest experts in Jewish law and scripture. And he was asking them questions and listening to their answers. Now, where they was ama- were amazed was in the quality of his questions. They weren't the questions of a 12-year-old. They were the questions of a more learned man who still had learning to do. But don't think Christ was teaching them. He wasn't. He was learning. And this gets back to the idea 
in the short passage earlier that Christ was growing. Christ was learning. Christ was not born with all the knowledge of Scripture. He learned it. He prepared for 30 years for service. And here in the temple at age 12, he is learning. As he said, he was about his father's business. Now at 12, he's one year before his bar mitzvah. The ceremony in which he becomes a child of the commandments, bar mitzvah. And one of the things you're supposed to do, which a lot of peasant boys couldn't do because they didn't have the resources, was learn of the law. Now, Christ was very advanced already. We can take that from the position the scribes and Pharisees, they were astonished that this 12-year-old boy had this depth of understanding. And remember, that depth of understanding comes from his wisdom. He could put the pieces together better than anybody else. But he still needed the pieces. He was still collecting the pieces. And at 12, in Nazareth, he only had so many pieces. This time in, in, in Jerusalem, he, he collected a lot more pieces. Built a bigger structure. The Bible isn't clear, but he may have been following his father's direction in staying. The Bible is silent on this. You decide what you believe. Now, what I can tell you very confidently is that Mary and Joseph could not have told him to leave with the family. Because if they had told him to leave and he had not left, that would be disobedience. That would be sin. So I'm confident that Mary and Joseph assumed he would leave with everyone else. It was implied. Hey, you know, we're le- Jesus, we're leaving. But if they didn't tell him to leave, then he has a little bit more freedom. Does he obey, the, does he obey their expected, uh, the action they expected to take, or does he obey the direction his father is giving him? If they don't tell him to leave, if, uh, if they told him to leave, I think Jesus would have said, uh, I'm sorry, I can't and explained then and there to Mary why he had to stay. Because he wouldn't have disobeyed them. But if it came ahead on, I'm confident he would have explained. But this story is about assumptions. This story is about expectations. His parents knew he was in the caravan. They were also wrong. Christ was coming into his sovereignty. Remember, as the God-man, that God part is sovereign over the universe. As Christ grows, that sovereignty is growing. Mary and Joseph, caught up in their parental worry, could not see it from Jesus' perspective. And their reaction colors the whole story, as I was saying. But the truth is underneath. Jesus was there to learn. Jesus was starting his preparation. He was not directly disobedient, but was in a web of hierarchical hierarchies and of his parents' assumptions. The truth, the real truth, is at the end of this passage. 
In Luke 2:51a, and I just skipped B because it didn't matter. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. Subject unto them. Three very important words. My children at age 12 obeyed me or got punished because their job was to obey me. They didn't have any authority of their own. Christ at 12 was coming into his sovereignty and he chose on leaving Jerusalem to be subject unto his parents. He could only be subject if he had his own sovereignty innate in himself. So there's a difference. Me, at 12, choosing to obey my parents was a good idea because I knew exactly what my father's hand felt like. But I had no authority myself. In modern American families, we try to get the kids to the point where they can express their independence somewhere around 18. You don't throw a 12-year-old out on the street, right? Not expected. They're not fully ready. Even at 18, they're not fully ready. But they're not, certainly not ready at 12. So my kids were not, in that sense, subject unto me. But Christ chose to subject himself. He had his own sovereignty. He chose to bring it under the umbrella of Joseph and Mary. Do you understand? Does that make sense? Let's talk a little more about Jesus' obedience. From John 5, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. The God-man, Jesus, imitated the Father. What he sees the Father do, he he does. He does. (laughs) Jesus set aside a lot of his godly qualities, and he grew into the Messiah role by age 30 by imitating what he saw God do. This just supports this growth idea. In John, again, 6.38, For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. He came to earth not of his own will, but in obedience to the will of the Father. And then in John 7.16, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his that sent me. Jesus says his message was not his own. It was the Father's message. Now, I believe that at a time before the incarnation, God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit were all in agreement, this is what we're doing. But at the moment of the incarnation, Jesus walked away from many of his godly attributes and became like unto a child. And he learned But he always had the father there as a touch point. And the reason he says the doctrines are not his own, well, the doctrines were his own over there. But now he's taking those doctrines from the father, from the pure source, not taking any chances of screwing them up in his humanity. Take them straight from the father, pass them out to the people. In obedience. In voluntary subjugation. And then in Philippians, being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, 
even the death of the cross. Now, this is the ultimate obedience. He followed the Father's will and died on the cross. And we have the passages in the Bible showing his human nature fighting against that, knowing just how unpleasant his day was going to be. And obviously, that's an incredible understatement, but obedient to the Father, willingly subjugating himself to the Father. Now, Jesus' obedience made possible God's imputation at the cross. Now, answers in Genesis, they put these little uh, theological segments in with their lessons. And a lot of them make a lot of sense. This one kind of clunks, in my opinion. So I don't have a really good segue, so just put up with it as we talk about this. Side lesson, imputation. Has anyone ever been imputed? Maybe in a back alley? Possibly in a schoolyard? Do you know what imputation? You may know what imputation is. It's a fancy word for a really simple idea. It's crediting someone's account. If someone gives me $5,000 and that money is put into my account, it has just been imputed into my name. As opposed to him handing me 50 uh, Benjamins. Not not Benjamins, no, 50 hundreds. Benjamins are 50, I think. Anyway, um, imputed. Something is put to your account. Now, imputation while sounding like a slightly rude word, and being a very big biblical word, it's also a very simple idea. And it's a very important idea, because we're going to talk today about three imputations. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All of us started off our lives with an imputation to our account. Regrettably, it was not a credit. It was a debit. Because Adam's sin has been imputed unto all mankind so that we all start with a sin nature. We all start with original sin. This is the only bad imputation among the three. That's the good news. (laughs) But then... Now, where's that leave us? That leaves us with mankind in sin and going to hell. Not good news. Not a, not a good place to be. But if we look at 1 Peter 2.24, talking about Christ, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed, God imputed all of mankind's sin. That's a long time with an adding machine is what that is. That's a, lot, it's a big account. All that sin lumped together, dropped on Christ as he hung on the cross. And the darkness across the land was God turning his back on Christ because he couldn't look upon that much sin. I mean, all that sin in one place, it's amazing the earth just didn't collapse. and But it was Christ who could bear it. So this second imputation leaves us innocent of hell. We no longer have to go to hell because our sins have been transferred to Christ. But it leaves us unworthy of heaven. Because we're kind of in a neutral state now. 
No more hell. What do we got left? Limbo? But Romans chapter 5, verse 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment upon all men... Let me try that again. Therefore, as by the offense of judgment came upon all... Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Finally, in the third imputation, God takes the righteousness of Christ and credits our accounts. And now we can go to heaven. Three imputations. Adam... Sin on all mankind sends us to hell. Our sins on Christ redirects our path away from hell. Christ's righteousness onto us accesses heaven. Now what this is doing in this talk about Jesus' obedience, I'm not really sure, but there we are. We'll go back to obedience. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation." Now we, now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You can hear that imputation cycle in this passage. Conclusion, in Christ we are new creations. God has reconciled us to himself. He's accomplished this through the person and sacrifice of Christ. We now have a ministry of reconciliation. And I didn't talk about that word. I apologize. To reconcile is to bring together, to break, to cover that gap so that two can become one. We have a ministry of reconciliation. Having been reconciled ourselves, we now reach out to the unreconciled. We are to act as ambassadors for God. Jesus took our sins. God gave us Jesus' righteousness. And then also in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now, if you're looking through your Bible, and you want to find the Bible verse most loaded with Bible terminology, here you are. You got, you got four of the big ones right there. Righteousness, sanctification, oh, maybe three, <laughs> and wisdom. But what's it saying to us? Jesus, our Christ, is described in this passage as wisdom, as righteousness, freedom from sin, holiness, uh, judicial correctness, sanctification, to be made holy, 
redemption, Savior from apparel. All these things in Christ. And our salvation is based on Jesus. He is our sanctification. He is our redemption. And this was only possible because of his obedience. So, how now would you respond if someone tried to use the account of Jesus in the temple to say that he sinned by disobeying his parents? Do you understand the idea? This is the part where the heads do this or this. You got a choice. Just don't do this. I'll be really confused. Anyone try to, anyone want to try to express what they would say? How they would counter this accusation that Jesus was sinful? I'm sure telling them Hebrews would help a great deal, brother. It might confuse them. Sorry, brother, I shouldn't take advantage of you while you're sick. Yeah, arguing from the Bible is a great start. Hebrews chapter 4. Anyone else? Brother. You're probably going to have to expand a little on that when talking to them, but yeah, that's, that's pretty much the basis where you start, I think. Anyone else? Or if you want to keep going, keep going. 